if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to John chapter 5, verses, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Uh, I, I love Christmas. Um, I don't always love the preparation for Christmas, but I really enjoy gifts. I like getting things. Do I have any, anyone else like getting stuff from other people for free? I'm the only honest person in the room. I just like to give gifts. That's what blesses me. No, it's nice. I like it. Uh, but one of the honest marks of maturity, right, is, is going from being excited about the gift to being excited and thankful about the giver. Uh, if you're a parent, you've seen this at work. You know, there's, there's the age of like zero to like somewhere around two or three where the excitement is, it's about the gift, but it's almost about the container of the gift. You know, it's about the paper and, and you're like, no, play with the toy. And they're like, okay, but here the paper. And they're like, I want to rip the paper. And I remember there were these, these videos a long time, a long while back of, of when YouTube was like cats and babies. And it was like babies where, where you would rip the paper and they'd laugh because that's, that's, that's their speed. But they loved the gift. And then you get to round three and they start to figure out, hey, this happened last year. And some awesome things happened. I got some cool stuff, and it's happening again. And they start to get excited about the gifts. And, and then you have this period of time where you're lovingly training your child to both be excited about the gift, but to not be a, a, a little bit of a jerk. You know, say thank you, look at the person in the eye, and say, th- and they're like, thank you, thank you. And then finally, hopefully, we all matriculate to the age at which we, we look at the gift and we've established a level of self-control so that we say to our soul, okay, hold on a second, thank you, <laughs> you know, and you excitedly open the gift, right? Well, today I want us to think about what it looks like to go in the Spirit, uh, in our, our walk with God from being excited about the gift to being excited about the giver, amen? amen. So we're going to stand together and we're going to read John chapter 5. Just all of, no, uh, we'll read 15 verses. It's going to be enough <laughs> for all of us. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, we're going to read it together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Is it, it is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, 
for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with a number of things going on in our lives, some physical, some emotional, some spiritual issues, challenges, ailments, disabilities, difficulties. And, and like this disabled man, Lord, we are, we are looking for a solution. And God, I pray that by your spirit that we would, we would see the provision in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would see not only the provision for meeting our varied spiritual or physical needs, God, but the, the provision of your spirit, the provision of your, your son, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sins. And God, I pray that we would not, we would not miss the forest for the trees. Open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. For those in this room who, who've never trusted him, open their eyes to see freshly the glory of who Jesus is. And for those who have been walking for a season with you, renew our vision. Lord, that we might apprehend freshly today and appreciate not just the gifts, not just the blessings, not just the miracles, but the one who works these things that we might give glory where glory is due. Heavenly Father, make us a people who glorify you joyfully. Make us a people who say thank you in word and in deed, who experience your love and, and out of the overflow of the love that we receive from you, who love radically those around us. And Lord, we pray for miracles. We pray for signs and wonders to flow in this community that you might heal people in a moment, even today. But God, we pray that, that those would be opportunities for us to draw close to you and to draw others close to you. Jesus, reign and rule in this service as we worship you, as we think about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. You did it. Good job. A couple moments where I didn't know if I was going to make it. So Jesus has been ministering. If you're, if you're new with us, we've been going through the book of John looking at the various miracles of Jesus, looking at the, the ministry that he performed. And at the beginning of John, there are a number of different miracles. John focuses on miracles and then it kind of slows down and he kind of shifts gear. And so we, we looked last week at, at chapter 4. Um, Jesus, with this, this official son, he heals this official son. Prior to that, he had been Samaria ministering. Uh, in chapter 2, we see that he's, he's cleansing a temple. He, he goes to this, this wedding, and, and it's been miracle after miracle where, where Jesus is doing amazing things. But he's not just doing amazing things because um, he, he's just for the sake of, of showing his power. There's an intentionality to his 
miracles, and he is doing so in order to draw people to himself and, and to begin to help them see that he is the one that they need. And, and this, I'm just going to say on the outset that this is a, I, I read this a, a number of times, and I, I believe that this is a bit of a cautionary tale. You know, there's, there's a danger that we face here and now even of being close, perhaps in, in close proximity with God, maybe, maybe even experiencing some of the power of God, and yet walking away largely unchanged. And what a dangerous thing that is. If we take seriously what the Word of God says about our need, our real need, our spiritual need, then for us to come close to Jesus but not really receive him as Lord and Savior is to really not receive him at all. And so we see that Jesus is going to uh, another feast. We don't know exactly what feast it is. Uh, and I think the point that John's trying to make is it doesn't really matter what feast it is. Although there's, there's an amount of time, again, that we don't know that has passed. After this, it says in verse 1, there was a feast. And so Jesus, being a faithful uh, Jewish man... And fulfilling all righteousness, he goes to Jerusalem for the sake of the feast. Um, and as he's going, there, there's this, these pools. There's actually two pools that are uh, on the north side of the temple. If you were to look it up, you could look it up uh, where there's Herod's Wall. And right outside, there's a temple. Or not a temple. There, right outside the temple, there are these two uh, north side, south side pools. And together, they're the, the pools of Bethesda. You can look it up. They've actually found them. Um, they've, they've excavated it. And, and if you don't know what a colonnade is, I didn't either. So I had to look it up. I took about two weeks of art history. Um, I thought it was going to be an easy class. Uh, it met at 8 in the morning, and the, the teacher was like, this is not going to be an easy class. This is not an easy elective. Uh, I'm going to be hard on you. And so I spent a couple weeks learning about uh, ionic columns and then just quit. So we never got to colonnades. So as it turns out, colonnades are these, these arched roofs that are supported by columns. What kind? I don't know. Ionic, you look it up. Corinthian, something. They were great. They worked. They still exist. Um, and so there were these covered roofs that, that surrounded this pool. And, and so it was a place where there was shelter, and there, there was a place where there was water, and it's entirely possible that this water was supported by a, some springs. And you get this idea as you read the story that there's something unique about this place that has drawn the blind, the, the, the lame, people who are seeking a healing. They're, they're seeking some supernatural help. And so this is the place where the story happens. Now, some of you might have been notice, noticing, uh, if you were paying attention, that we did not read verse 4. And if you're in your, your Bible and you're, you're maybe you're in the King James or the New King James, you might be saying, there's a verse 4, Pastor Eddie. What do you guys do? That was not a mistake on the back. They did an amazing job. Um, all that is is that some Bibles, uh, like the, the King James, the New American Standard, the New King James, they include a second part of verse 3 and verse 4 that it, that it, it explains the superstition that was going on. It explains the fact that they would come together and there was this kind of superstitious, semi-Jewish, uh, uh, really not, belief that an angel would, would stir the waters and the first, it was like a race, which is a, it's kind of a sad thing because <laughs> it was a race among, 
among the, the disabled to get to the water. The first person there would potentially be healed. Now, what we've come to find out is that, that those verses don't exist in any of the, the copies of the Bible that we have that are from 400 A.D. and, and earlier. So in the most earliest of, of manuscripts, we don't include that. So what likely happened is that you had a scholar or, or a writer who was like, you know what, this is what was going on, and it was, a, it was a marginal note that then got incorporated. If that freaks you out, don't worry, because you can go look it up, verse 3 and 4, and there's no, like, there is no trinity in verse 4 that we're taking out. There's no major doctrine that exists, but we believe that it wasn't in the most original forms. Is that okay? Everyone... The Bible is still the word of God. Good. Okay. Don't panic. Um, and so at this pool, there's a man who the text says has been disabled for 38 years. That's a long time. That's a long time for us, but it's, it's an even longer time when it's entirely possible that the, the lifespan, the average lifespan of an individual was around 40 years old. So if, if this man had been disabled from birth, then, then he was near the end of his whole entire life having been disabled that way. It's entirely possible that he had lived even longer than, than others had, had lived, and his life had been one of, of discomfort and, and difficulty. And it's this man whom Jesus picks out from the crowd. And you can just, just put yourself there and imagine all of these people they have been brought there by family members. Maybe they'd stayed there for long periods of time. They, this is their hope, right? These potentially semi-medicinal waters. And along the lines, the, their hope is, is that uh, they'll, they'll be healed there and, and perhaps the, the surrounding community will, will provide for them. And this man, he's been living there long enough. It says that he'd been there a long time um, and, and he had been waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, it's interesting. It's just a side note. I don't think this is a main point of the text, but one of the things that I think we can draw out is that, that when you're waiting for something, you don't want to make your own timetables sovereign over your life. And if you've lived for any length of time, you know, some of the, our more mature believers in the room are like, yep, I can give you five or six different examples of where that was the case, where I had a, an expectation for God to do something. I had a, a desire for God to move in this way. I, I had, a, had a hope for God to do something in my life, in the life of my kid, or in the life of my, you know, in my, in my job, and, and I'd waited and awaited and awaited, and I set, I set the boundaries of, of the timeline, and God said, nope. But the good news for this guy is that however long he had been waiting, whatever timelines he had set, God did uh, intersect with his life. So don't give up on those things that you're waiting on from God. So Jesus sees the man and knows, he says he knows, knew that he had been there for a long time, perhaps supernaturally, perhaps someone told him. Uh, and, and he asks this simple question in verse 6. It says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed. Some of the, Jesus' most uh, profound moments were introduced by just a simple question. Because the good news of the gospel is not complex. He doesn't have to come in and, and kind of lay out anything. He's not an engineer. It's just a simple question. What's, what's on your heart? Do you want to be healed? It's, it's 
it's an offer. It's not just a question. He's not asking because he's like, well, that's good. I'm taking the surveys. I'm, I'm going to be talking to some of the other um, disabled people, and, and depending upon how it turns out, we'll decide how to move forward. No, he's asking him because it's, it's an implicit invitation, saying, do you want to be healed? I have the power to heal. I want you guys to listen to the way this guy responds because, again, his life and his response is a cautionary tale to us. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? The sick man answers him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So he, he begins to reflect back this superstition. He says, I want to get, I, I can't even get down there. There's no one around. And, and you're beginning to ask yourself, where his friends, where his family? He's been waiting 38 years. He couldn't, he couldn't get someone to help him? If you begin to think about it, it's almost as, this, as if he's, he's begun to settle into his circumstances. He's begun to, to settle into this kind of victimized mentality. Not to say he doesn't have a difficult life, not to say that he, he's not experiencing real pain, but he doesn't even say yes to Jesus. He just begins to list off the problems. He doesn't even see the potential. All he sees are the obstacles. He has what I would call a pessimistic posture. And, and, and doesn't this reflect, doesn't, maybe it's just me, does this reflect your life sometimes? Maybe, maybe you've asked God, you've prayed, God, please help me. You had one of those moments where your prayer was just, and it was somewhere between praying slash just keeping yourself from not flipping out. And you're, God, help me. Or you, you bump up against an obstacle. God, help me in this moment. God, I need you. And at some point, our prayers turn from requests into grumbling. We stop asking God, and we just start complaining to God with no expectation that he's going to address it, just a, this is my life. This is my life. And it's, it, it goes, it's this, this process where you're, you're asking God, you're, you're directing your, your pain to him, you're directing your challenges to him, to you to just begin to look at your problems. And, and it's almost as if you're talking to yourself with an expectation that God's maybe listening. That's the kind of posture that this guy seems to have, one where, where he's not even necessarily super aware of Jesus there. He's like, Ugh, I don't even have someone. You know, the, the Israelites... I, I joke with my wife sometimes, um, talking about just the, the craziness of our own, our own forgetfulness. The, the Israelites who, who had been enslaved in, in Egypt, they have this pretty miraculous experience, right? They, they have all these plagues that sweep through, and for the, for the Egyptians, it's terrible. For the, for the Israelites, it's amazing. It's awesome. They're, they're saved. They're brought out into the into the wilderness to, be, to go into a, a, a promised land. But then they begin to complain. They, they begin to forget what God has done and they begin to look at their obstacles around them and, and just listen to, to the way they begin to speak in, in Numbers chapter 11. Now the rabble that was among them, talking about the, the Israelites, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. They were slaves. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I'm on board with the garlic. I'd probably complain about that too. 
Um, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing here but this manna to look at. God had provided manna. You know, you, you, you want to look at them and say, that's a miracle. But their proximity to it, their, their casualness with it, they had begun to forget the fact that God was at work. Isn't that, isn't that our lives so often? God, we know that you saved us from back-breaking slavery, that you drew us out of a dismal life, but man, the onions. Man. And I want, I, want you to, so I want you to think about that disposition because it's only when you look at that that you can see how merciful Jesus is. So it says, he says, sir, I, I, I have no one to put me into the water. And when it's stirred up, and, and while I'm going down, I'm trying to get down, but another one steps in front of me. 38 years, over and over and over. I don't, I don't know about you, but like, there's certain things that I, I see happen in parenting that I'm like, nope. And, and not like judging others. I just remember the types of things that I was allowed to do and not allowed to do. And then I see, you know, even my generation parenting kids, and, I, I, and there are things that, that, that kids will do, and you're like, that would not have flown. And I'm putting it delicately. Like, like there's just a part of your brain that's just like, because you almost feel the consequence on their behalf in the moment. You're like, don't do, no. It's probably, I probably need some emotional healing. Um, but... That's kind of how I feel when this guy's talking to Jesus. Like he's talking to, like Colossians 1, the, the, the firstborn from the dead, the one who's over the church, he's, he's the image of the invisible God, just a universal, colossal, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and this guy's complaining. And you're kind of like, I wouldn't do that, buddy. And, and Jesus says to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. You know what he doesn't say? Stop complaining. Get, get your head on straight. Clean up, put on a nice shirt, and then we'll talk. Now, Jesus is willing to get into his business. Jesus chose this guy. I mean, again, if we're thinking about this, this is not a room with this guy and Jesus. This is... The, the area was filled with, it says, the blind, the lame, the disabled, all these people around. And Jesus picks this guy. And he didn't just flip a coin. Jesus was never unintentional in his ministry. He chose this man. And this man shows just a, just a significant flippancy and casualness. And Jesus... He engages with us. Family, never, never, never um, confuse God's willingness to get into your life for his approval of the things in your life. We live in a culture that's, and I'm, I'm in it too. I swim in the water, I drink, the, I, you know, I, 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 I breathe the air. But we live in a culture that, that is heavy on just how approachable Jesus is. And he is. But I, I so appreciate what we're singing about that we worship hallelujah. Holy. God is holy. That means he's, 
he's not like us. And there's a level, this is why we stand to read the word, because there's a level of honor and respect that's due to him. And yet, he is so merciful. He says, get up, take your bed and walk. And in Jesus' command is the power for him to obey. And so the man picks up his mat and walks. And then we get the transitional dun-dun-dun. Second part of verse, verse 9 says, now that day was the Sabbath. And you almost, you, you almost hear John pausing just to say, it's going to get bad. You know, it just gets ominous. So the Jews said to the man who had not been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Right? He encounters some Jewish religious leaders who inform him that he is breaking the law. So what, what should we think about this moment? I mean, if you're paying attention... And you really want to ask that question, what do we make of that? Are these Jewish leaders right? right? Have they read the Bible and, or the, the Old Testament and are they, are they pointing out something? Is Jesus calling this guy to, to, to disobedience to the law? Right? Has Jesus just told this guy to do something he's not supposed to do? And of course the answer is no. Um, had this man carried mats as a living, I don't know that what kind of living that would be. If it was like, Bill's mats, we carry them. Um, you pay us, we carry it then he would have been breaking Sabbath rules, right? You were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You were not supposed to do whatever you were employed to do on the Sabbath. That was not his rule, or that was not what he had been doing. In, in one commentary, this guy named D.A. Carson tells us regarding the Sabbath that dominant rabbinic opinion had analyzed the prohibition, the prohibition of you know, not working on the Sabbath, into 39 classes of work, including taking or carrying anything from one domain to another. So some, some religious leaders got together and they said, okay, we know, let's do this right. Let's put, it on, let's put it on a chart. Let's get a whiteboard and let's figure this thing out. Some of you are like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. And you guys are the Pharisees with me, right? Let's, let's figure this out. Let's engineer this thing. Let's get it right. Let's, let's engineer our own self-righteousness. And so they create 39 categories of what it looks like to obey Sabbath rules and disobey Sabbath rules. And one of them was, hey, guys, you can't carry things from one domain to another. What is a domain? Ask one of the engineers in the room. I don't know. But clearly he was doing what he was not supposed to do according to man-made standards. This is... This is what John, he, John is presenting us with some significant irony. This is ironic. Again, God has healed this man. God, who gave us the Sabbath law, has told this man, go pick up your, your mat and go. And these humans were like, wait a second, God. He's breaking the rules. Like, that's ironic. It, and... and it's, it's scary because we can find ourselves in similar situations where we begin to kind of create some sort of standard. I mean, that's, that's what we love to do. We love to create a standard. Now, it might not be this standard, but it might be this standard. I'm not as bad as Bill at work. And we create a standard and we live by that standard, which has nothing to do with what God calls us to do. Anyhow. They're staring at a miracle, but they can't see beyond their own self-righteousness. So no, Jesus is not commanding the man to disobey God. Nevertheless, the man replies. Again, think about the way the man responds, because again, as I said before, 
It's a cautionary tale. He answers them. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, this is not, you, you could read this and say, oh, he's testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no. Chapter 9 talks about a man who gets healed and he testifies to Jesus. He's blind. Jesus says, in fact, th- this man did nothing wrong. But, but his, he was blind in order that the glory of God might be shown. But here, he is covering for himself. He doesn't want to get in trouble with this rel- these religious leaders. He's passing that buck. He's saying, it wasn't me. I'm sorry. I, I was with you guys, but he, told, he made me do it. I don't know. He, he picked me up and said, carry this thing. I said, no, that's not God's way. And, and they said, it is God's way. He, and he, so here I am. I don't know. I'm just a pawn in this whole thing. And I, remember how I talked about him, him being a victim in that moment? In this moment, he's, nothing has changed. The way that he's relating to the world has not changed. He, he was so focused on, on not getting in trouble that he, he passes the buck. Um, he, misses, he misses the point. Now, what's funny is he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Right? I'm not sure how that happens. Again... You get healed from 38 years in a moment, and you don't even get the guy's name. And, and you not, yeah, we chuckle. We're like, that's, oh, silly guy. But we do it all the time. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I lived in uh, Dale City. That's not super pertinent, but here we are. Um, and I had, we'd go all hang out, and there were kids in the neighborhood. There was a blacktop. And there was one kid in the neighborhood who, uh, his dad worked for Lego. And not like worked for Lego, like, I don't know, did boring things at Lego, but like he had Legos. Like he was the Lego hookup. <laughs> and I remember, and this was in back, this wasn't where it was like Lego, you know, what's the latest movie, and now you can build life-size versions, and I, I have a, a working Lego X-Wing. That's not... It was like you've got like five blocks, they're all really small, don't step on them, but they're really cool. And I remember that I had been hanging out with this kid, and, and we, were, we were, he was kind of annoying, but, but I was trying to be nice. And then his dad gave me, I remember the box, it was a Lego Technics, which was like brand new. Again, now we're like Technic Schmechnics, you know, I've got ones that shoot lasers and whatever, but, but it, it, it had gears and it was a motorcycle. And so you, you, could, you could turn the wheel, and it had little pistons that would go. Really cool. One of the neatest things that I'd ever get, gotten. And so this guy was now my best friend. I mean, we were just so close. We had so much in common. And, and we laugh, but I look back at that time, and, and I'm ashamed because I treated this, this kid like a means to an end. And what I wanted was Lego Dad. <laughs> I wanted Lego Dad. And, and sometimes we want Lego Dad Christianity. And, and like this guy, we're like, okay, Jesus, just, just fix my issue. Just p- please. It's amazing how spiritual we can get in, in those circumstances. And then God tests us and he fixes the circumstance. And all of a sudden, man, it's really hard to get to church. Oh, I got a lot of things going on. You know, I, I, got, I got work is hard. You know, the kids, they don't want to go. 
And I don't, I don't, I don't need to pray today. I'm not going to read my Bible. I read my Bible, and all of a sudden, what was so necessary in our life, what was so, so life-giving is now something we just give up. And it's not because those things stopped being life-giving. It's because we were, we were seeking Lego Dad Christianity. We wanted the gift and not the giver. That is why this guy did not care who Jesus was. He got what he wanted. But again, Jesus is gracious. It says in verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus found him. Don't fool yourself, family. If you're seeking Jesus, he's been seeking you. Hear me. If you're in this room and you're like, I'm I'm curious about God. I want to find out about God. I'm a seeker. Understand that God has been seeking you. The fact that you're in this room is evidence that God has been seeking you. It says that afterwards Jesus found him in the temple. And he had this, this corollary conversation. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Oh, okay, Jesus. This is a different situation, and and what this tells us is a couple things. One, unlike in chapter 9, if you want to go, you can read chapter 9 later, where Jesus heals another person who's disabled. It's entirely likely that this guy had sinned and as a result was disabled. We're not sure if it was a continual thing, but he goes and he says, sin no more. In other words, you've you've been sinning, you've been um, persisting in this thing. And it's entirely possible that that might even be, now this is some speculation, but that might be the reason he picked this man among the group of the the people at at the pool of Bethesda. Perhaps that's the reason, because he wanted to address the man's sin. But we know that Jesus tells him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen. Um, how many of you know that if we persist in sin, something worse will happen? Uh, in fact, Jesus, John tells us in chapter 3, we love this verse. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, in other words, Uh, This is the way that God showed his love, right? This is the manner in which he showed it, by sending his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, period. We stop there. There's more. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So you believe in Jesus, you get what? Eternal life. But there's an alternative. And he says that those who do not believe have been condemned already. They've already shown themselves to be sinners in in danger of God's judgment. There is something worse if we persist in sin. And so the final question I have to ask as we look at this is how does he respond? Right? Jesus basically, he calls him down to the altar. If this was church and Jesus was preaching, he's saying, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, you need to trust in me, Jesus Christ. How does he respond? Does he raise his hand? Does he pray? Does he walk down the aisle? Does he say anything? Let's read verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
Again, this is not testimony. This is him covering for himself. He's like, how do you spell that, Jesus? Okay. It was that guy, Jesus. I am, I am frightened by this text because it means that you could be radically healed in a moment. Your life could be completely changed in a moment. Going from unable to provide for yourself, dependent upon everyone, poor, in pain, suffering, saved in a moment, or, or healed in a moment, and nothing substantially changed. If you're in this room and you think that I'm, I came to church, I did my thing, that was enough, nothing has changed. Don't fool yourself. Change happens not when we receive the gift. Change happens when we receive the giver. See, Jesus had, had given this man a sign. And the sign was his healing. Sign, it wasn't just a miracle. Jesus wasn't just doing this for that reason. As important as, as his physical health was, his spiritual health was more important. And Jesus was trying to get his attention. And John, through Jesus, is trying to get our attention. The danger for us today is that we could be blessed by God and miss the whole point. You could come to church every single day. You could talk to me. You could serve on the usher team. You could be one of the most nice people that we have in our church and, and go straight to hell. And I say that, I say that in love. But that, that's the danger of this text is if, if you don't just receive, if, if you receive the gifts of God without receiving and submitting to the giver who is God, You've missed the whole point of all the gifts. Like at Christmas, we give gifts, and sometimes we give gifts because that's what you do, right? You're a parent, you're like, I don't know, it's Christmas, here's a big bag of stuff that you're going to play with for three weeks, and then I'm going to have to probably give away or put away, or you know, we'll get a bigger house and just more unfinished storage, I don't know. But, but hopefully underneath some of that, we're like, I love you, here's an expression of my love, will you receive my love? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, not just so that we could get cool stuff, not just so that you could get released from the difficulties of your life, not just so that you, you could have your temporal chains broken, not just so that you could temporally experience a, 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 a healing here and now and then live your life however you decide you ought to live it, but so that you might be able to see and appreciate that you were built and made and created for God. That you have a destiny that extends beyond 80 years. That you are made to worship God for all of eternity. And that that thing is a good thing. That it's not just you getting a harp in heaven from St. Peter and just like, I don't know what this is about. Heaven is boring. Heaven is not going to be boring. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be busy. It's going to be real. It's going to be dynamic. It's going to be colorful. When God recreates everything, it's going to be Compelling. Paul says it in, in one of his letters. He, he talks about, I think it's 2 Corinthians. I'm, I'm off my notes, so here we go. Um, he, he says that, that this light and momentary affliction is, is nothing compared to the weight of glory that we'll experience. 
That's Paul's way of saying that it's going to be awesome. Not just awesome in the, you know, 90s, like, man, that's awesome. But I do think it will be awesome. <laughs> but awesome in the sense of like, oh, of, of <laughs> you ever have those dreams where you're falling and then you wake up and you just have this moment of panic because you're, you just experienced, or, or you, 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 for me, it's heights. You know, you, you see heights and you're like, your hands are palm, your palms are sweaty and you realize you're a small insignificant nothing that can't stop gravity, right? It's going to be awesome. You be in the presence of God. And, and if, we don't, if we don't get it now, we won't get it at all. John tells us, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it again. John tells us in chapter 20 as we, as we finish up. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. In Hebrews, the writer says this, Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you and in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another day by day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's almost like he was reading this story. It's like, don't persist in sin, but encourage one another. Call up your friends. Encourage them with what you've been reading in your Bible every day because you're reading in your Bible every day, right? Yes, okay, good. Um, for we have come to share Christ if we, if we indeed hold to our original confession firm to the end. And it goes on and it says, while it's still today, do not harden your hearts. While you have the chance, respond to Jesus. Or consider the words of Paul as, as I finish up. He says in, in Titus chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. Right? He is the grace of God. He's the unmerited favor to you. He's come to you and he said, I have come to bring good things to you. I've come to bring life, eternal life, salvation, purpose to you. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But to what end? training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to re redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's a, a long sentence that says that God's grace is not a fire insurance policy. God's grace is, is intended to transform your life. God's grace is intended to change your life. God gives us grace not only to save us, but to train us to obey Jesus. Um, hear the words of the, this is one of my favorite hymns. We don't do hymns that much anymore, but Look them up. They're great. Um, this is, Come thou fount of every blessing. It says, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Right? Streams of mercy that God gives us, which are never ceasing. What do they do? They call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. 
Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. That verse tells us that the, the mercies of God that flow into our lives, the blessings of God that flow into our lives, the goodness of God that flows into our lives is something that's intended to call us into something, call us into worship, to praise, to obedience, to repentance, to life change, to submission. It's God's mercies, his grace, his blessing that call not only for sighs of relief, but songs of praise. And today, though, though you may not have been healed from a 38-year disability, you've encountered Jesus in his words. Right? As I said, he, he has come and sought you. You've heard of the grace of eternal life. How are you going to respond? Don't, don't seek out Lego Dad Christianity. Don't worry about the onions. Don't just receive the gift. Receive the giver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would receive you, not just the good things that you give. God, I'm thankful for the good things you give. God, we thank you that every good and perfect gift, as your word says in James, comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no, no shadow or, or, or change. God, you are a good God who, who loves to give good gifts. Thank you. And God, I pray that we would receive the greatest gift you've given us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. That we would not settle for lesser gifts. If you're in this room today and you need to trust Jesus for the first time, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to go from, from just seeking out gifts to seeking out the giver, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to respond differently than this man responded. Father God, I pray that you would minister your love to us. God, I thank you that you do love us. I thank you that you are so faithful and merciful to us. I pray that you would help us to live in light of that, to follow Jesus, to receive your blessings as opportunities to come to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I love you, family.